Maybe you've been in conversations like this before. He's, he's starting to decline and get worse. He's not listening to our concerns or corrections. I'm afraid this will not end well. She said she's not doing those sinful and destructive things anymore. She's turning the corner for the better. Praise be to God. Did you hear? The the plans are still on. No one has changed their minds. I can't unscramble the egg. There's no point of trying to rehearse or change the past. So I've chosen to move forward and continue moving on with life. You're not who you used to be. You're different. You've changed. Every rational human being makes choices every day. Some of those choices are self-conscious, well thought out, and made out of a keen self-awareness and a careful understanding of the options before us. And there are other choices we make that are simply in response to choices that are made by other people. These are choices that we're forced to make, we often say, because changes have been made that are out of our control. But in life, change is an unavoidable reality, isn't it? Now, change can be hard to predict sometimes, but in many scenarios, it's safe to assume that change will occur in our lives, whether we like it at first or not. But not everyone at every stage of life responds to change the same way, do they? So, for example, younger people, generally speaking, are used to change. Change is quite normal for young whippersnappers. When we're younger, we tend to change our minds, change our friends, change our liking of hobbies and sports, and change our jobs and living arrangements quite frequently. Just look at how many times a young person changes their profile pic on the average social media page. Look at your grade school child and see if they still have the same best friend they have today three months from now. Or look back at those pictures of yourself in your teen years and in your 20s and how many goofy hairstyles that you adopted with each fad that came and gone. But the older we get, we tend to resist change, don't we? Or at least we are less excited about it. And we find ourselves unmotivated and unconvinced anything should change especially if those changes involve us changing. (laughs) The tendency seems to be that the deeper our roots go down in our ways of thinking and doing things, the harder it is to uproot those habits and those beliefs and begin having new ones. Life experience has taught many of us along the way, I'm sure, trying to teach an old dog new tricks is not an easy feat. In fact, the older we get, we may tend to gripe and complain more about change than we used to. Any adult knows this about life, especially if you've watched your parents grow older. Mom and Dad, this is not about you. I'm speaking about you caring for your aging parents. 
The mom and dad you once saw as energetic, pliable, adventurous go-getters in life now have a hard time accepting. They may not be able to live alone anymore. Maybe even to that end, be able to live in the same home they've lived in for decades. And no wonder we shouldn't be surprised that if Satan and his demonic forces pay attention to our lives, he knows these tendencies about us as well. Because Satan is a deceiver, a tempter, a schemer who lies and twists the truth and is heavily loaded with destructive tricks in his ancient arnesel, we can rightly assume he adapts his temptations to the changes he notices in our lives. He adapts his fiery darts to the various changes we experience with each new season in life. The 17th century Presbyterian theologian William Spurstow observed that this, quote, Satan tempts younger men with sexual fornication, a middle-aged man with an itch for honor and to be great, and an old man with covetousness and peevishness. Covetousness meaning a preoccupation of envying and longing for what you no longer have, especially in younger people. A peevishness meaning easily irritated about unimportant things. Today we might say it's a crabby and cranky old man or old woman. So young or old, the reality of change is inescapable. And the need for change can ebb and flow with each season of life. And friends, changes come about in our life for a host of different reasons. It's rarely just one factor. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to change. He had walked with Jesus for quite some time. He was a seasoned veteran when it came to trusting God through change. And so he discipled his young protege, Timothy, about how to make wise choices and how to be a godly influence for change in other people's lives. Uh, These instructions he gave Timothy... That's what we've been studying in our current sermon series. And this morning, we will learn that Paul gives Timothy several things to avoid and several things to pursue if Timothy was going to be an instrument for change for the good in people's lives. And friends, the same things that Paul told Timothy is what we need to hear again and again if we want to be useful in the hands of the Redeemer. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 578. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Two weeks ago, we were studying 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 19, where Paul charged Timothy with three pastoral duties he would be called to fulfill. And then he left him one reassuring promise he would need to cling to through it all. So just as a review, those three pastoral duties were, number one, Timothy was to warn the congregation for their spiritual protection by avoiding fruitless arguments. That's verse 14. Pastoral duty number two, Timothy was to work hard at teaching God's word accurately. That's verse 15. And then pastoral duty number three, Timothy was to identify the problem makers in the church and warn others of their dangerous influence. 
That's verses 16 to 18. And then we capped off with a reassuring promise he gave Timothy because in the midst of a fog of war, if you will, in the life of the church, Timothy, we need to hold on to something that would never change. Look down at verse 19. This is that soul-anchoring truth he gave him. But God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This morning, we pick back up in verses 20 to 26, where Paul drills down an essential spiritual truth that Timothy must embody in his life if he was going to be useful in the Lord's work in seeing lives changed for the glory of God. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 20. Please follow with me. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have one main point that summarizes Paul's teaching on how we become useful to the Lord in our service to others. I'll repeat it twice. The more Christ-like we become, the more useful to the Lord we become in ministering to others. The more Christ-like we become in our character, in our convictions, the more useful to the Lord we become in ministering to others. In verses 20 and 21, Paul gives a simple illustration that would have easily connected with Timothy in his congregation. And it's an illustration that I think many of us here at CCBC living today in 2023 can relate to to some degree as well. Look with me again at verses 20 and 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. In the midst of teaching Timothy what it means to lead, shepherd, disciple, and care for the church there in Ephesus, he illustrates for Timothy how he should conduct himself as a spiritual leader, as in many ways the commanding officer, the captain, the quarterback in the house of God. 
And he illustrates this by bringing to mind the picture of a wealthy, impressive, grandiose of a mansion, what Paul calls a great house. Some of your translations might even say a large house or a wealthy home. Friends, picture a huge and gorgeous home fenced in and decorated with elaborate landscaping. And it's the type of home that catches your eye. It makes you want to slow down and look at it longer. It's the house that is roadside eye candy. It's HGTV praiseworthy and more. But within this house, which is presumably owned by someone with great wealth, great power, and great influence, are various types of dishes, utensils, tools, and all sorts of furniture that you can find within that crib, as they used to say in Anyway, we'll just leave that 90s reference out somewhere else. These various objects are all made of different substances and are used in unique ways in accordance to the quality of which it is made. So, for example, he first mentions in verse 20, vessels of gold and silver are in this wealthy house, which indicates that these vessels or these objects are expensive. They're valuable. They're, they're rare to find. You can't just find them anywhere. And they are only to be used for special purposes, by permission, under the authority of the master of the house. Special purposes, Paul says, that are only for honorable use. Now that shouldn't surprise us, right? I'm sure you've got some expensive things in your home that not just anyone at any time can pick up and play with carry around, the more expensive and valuable an object is, the more cautious we are, the more careful we are, the more precise we are in how it is to be used and handled. It's like the difference between the way we might hold a crystal bowl versus a styrofoam plate because of the value and the worth of the object, we're going to handle it differently. That word honorable denotes its preciousness and revered nature. In other words, it's not a vessel to be used in casual, common, or otherwise dispensable ways. I'm sure many of us grew up in homes, or at least grandparents' homes, or distant relatives, where there were certain rooms you were not allowed to go in. Got that grandfather clock that would stare the daylights out of you when it would hit. It would be the forbidden room in the temple of your grandparents' house. Certain cabinets don't you ever touch. Certain things we cannot play with. Dishes, glasses, and silverware, if we got near, that death look came from grandma or mama or some other relative. And if you did touch that stuff, you did open that china cabinet, you're about to have a reset button in the back room where no one goes except when you're in trouble. Most likely there are rooms that we had in our homes, cabinets we have in our homes, fragile china sets, rare family heirlooms, expensive wedding gifts that have been handed down from generation to generation. They're used for special purposes, Thanksgiving meals, Christmas meals, or other formal occasions. But for the average hot dog lunch, the PB&J sandwich, the bowl of cereal on a normal sweatpants Saturday. You and I were probably given paper products 
dingy plastic cups, cheaper kitchenware, the kind of utensils and kitchenware that if they broke, it's not a big deal. If they got scratched up, it's not a big deal. If it was lost and never to be found again, it was just not that big of a deal. And that's basically what Paul is doing here with Timothy in this illustration. In this larger-than-life house, full of expensive and precious objects, there were certain purposes for which these valuable gold and silver vessels were to be used. But there were also these throwaway objects, common, forgettable. They served a purpose, but it was temporal. They served a purpose, but it was a lesser purpose. Paul calls it dishonorable use which speaks about it's things that we'll probably just throw in the trash, never to think about or even see ever again. Paul's illustration here meant things like jars made of clay, utensils and other common everyday tools made of cheap wood. They were needed in the house, but very limited and not in indispensable ways. Here, Paul takes this imagery of honorable, valuable, precious, praiseworthy vessels made of gold and silver. And he draws this young preacher, he draws this under-shepherd's attention away from the house illustration. And he points in to his life, to his witness, to his character, to his convictions, to his witness, and to the church he was entrusted by God to lead and serve. He flips the illustration now as a mirror back onto Timothy. And he basically says this, young man, if you're going to be useful to the master of the house, useful to the sovereign owner of the kingdom of God, useful in the hands of the supreme ruler over the church and over the universe, you're going to have to make a personal, self-conscious choice even when it's not popular or always well-received, you're going to have to make a series of choices that must be made even if all abandon you, all betray you, all fall away from Christ. You must make these on a daily basis and do not neglect them. In other words, he was basically telling Timothy, young man, you must be willing to stand alone. For Christ, even if all fell away, there are resolves, there are choices you will make, Timothy, that will have an impact and influence for bad or for good on those who are following your leadership. So what are those important choices that Timothy had to make that had massive implications on the people he was called to lead. In verse 21, Paul tells Timothy to take notice how the master or the homeowner of the wealthy house only uses the gold and silver objects that are positioned in places of honor where they are separated from those things which are dishonorable and disposable. In other words, these valuable objects which are set apart set aside, positioned in places in the house that prevent them from becoming contaminated, broken, scratched. He had to remain set apart and distinct 
to remain useful to the master. Here Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, the way to remain continue, continually, continually useful to the Lord, you must avoid certain vices and certain people who will bring you down. And you must pursue certain virtues with a special people who are doing the same. And in verses 22 and 23, we see a sampling of what he was called to avoid and what he was called to pursue. Look at me at verses 22 and 23. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. In order to be an instrument in the Lord's hands that is useful, powerful, beautiful, and effective for gospel good, Timothy had to flee and pursue. He had to run from certain harmful things, and he had to run to spiritually helpful things. It's not just one or the other. People who get God's grace down really good, they simply just talk about, well, it doesn't really matter about the law anymore. I can just live however I want to live. I've got fire insurance. That's antinomianism against God's law. God's forgiven us. I can just live however I want. The legalist has the list of rules of things not to do, but they never have anything positive they're pursuing. Friends, that's what happens with people who are lawless and legalists. They have the same heart problem. They have a misunderstanding of God's grace. We're not saved by our obedience to the law. We're saved by Christ's obedience for us to the law, and we're saved by grace. And yet, Shall our sin abound that grace may just be diminished? Friends, it's God's grace that motivates us to no longer live the life we used to live. And so here's Paul. Timothy, you need to flee and pursue. CCBC, you need to flee and pursue. So according to Paul, to be an honorable vessel in the hands of the living God. Timothy and us today must remain set apart, sanctified, holy from that which is dishonorable in our life, from that which is unholy, distasteful, spiritually harmful, and sinful in the eyes of God. Notice what he tells Timothy to do next. First, he told Timothy to flee, run, get out of Dodge, avoid like the plague, evacuate. But flee, run, and avoid what? Paul says there, flee youthful passions. But what are youthful passions? Uh, this word characterizes really what is common, sins, vices, and fleshly impulses 
that characterized most of us in our youth. A hot temper. A foul mouth. A harsh tone. A lustful eye. Indulging in sexual immorality. A selfish attitude. Hasty decision-making. Impulsive spending. Prideful self-dependence, arrogance, headstrong, difficult to deal with, stubborn, a self-centered and bitter jealousy, a time waster, a bad listener, a contentious and argumentative know-it-all. Have you ever noticed the younger people are at times, they can act as if they've lived 85 years It is so characteristic in our youthful pride that we care more about winning a debate more than winning the person, even if that means steamrolling them in the process. That's youthful passion. That's why in verse 23, Paul has to triple click for the third time in a letter, for about the fifth or sixth time in two letters, that Timothy should avoid certain conversations, remove himself from the room, tell people that's enough. Look what he says there in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. As one author said, Paul had to tell Timothy that God has given you one mouth, Timothy, and two ears, because you ought to listen twice as much as you speak. And friends, don't think we're off the hook just might because we maybe have a little few gray hairs or no hair. Just because we are older than maybe our younger teens and our early grade school years, it does not mean that we are all of a sudden wiser in our older years. Friends, there are deeply immature people, even in the church, that are in the latter years of their life. Just because they are seasoned and mature on the outside does not mean they are mature on the inside. Isn't that what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13? Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Friends, if you want to summarize youthful passions, it's basically this. Naivete ignorance, and foolishness. Always thinking you're right while lacking humility and true wisdom, having passion and zeal but without self-control. Youthful passions is the picture of someone driving a car throughout life, dangerously over the speed limit without any guidance on where they're going and never putting a seatbelt on in at all. That's no wonder Paul had to exhort not just Timothy, but Titus, who he had discipled, to embody the same traits. Titus 2, 6 to 8, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You see, instead of Timothy mixing up with these false teachers in Ephesus who were full of pride, always arguing, 
ignorant of God's word, divisive in their influence, Paul told Timothy not to entertain such foolishness. Don't even engage with these clowns. Don't entangle yourself with these drama queens. Don't pick a fight or try to grapple with these self-deceived bullies. Don't give them the time of day. Don't give them airtime. Don't give them any opportunity to suck the life out of your emails, phone calls, or schedules in a given week. In essence, Paul was telling Timothy, Timothy, care for the struggling sheep under your watch and shepherd the sheep that want to be fed and led by you. But for these wolves in sheep's clothing, men like Hymenaeus and Philetus, back in verses 16 to 18, and those who followed them, you know what Paul told Timothy to do? Mark them. Identify them. Publicly warn the saints of their name and what their influence that is so bad is. Avoid them. They are only troublemakers in the church, not peacemakers. Brothers and sisters, are you fleeing from known sin in your life? Or are you flirting with it? Are you resisting the temptations that are pressing in on you? Maybe they're an old temptation that's come back or a new temptation you've never even thought you would be tempted to do? Are you resisting them? Or are you allowing yourself to become too comfortable surrendering to it? Several times in Scripture, we're given this command not even to fight sin, certain sin, but to run. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or listen to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Or in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he wrote this, 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 11. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. But friends, we're not only called to flee and avoid certain sins and resist them, we are also called to avoid disfellowship and have no intimate entanglements with unbelievers. Though we're not called to go out of the world, we're sent into the world, we cannot allow the world to contaminate our witness and cause us to stumble. Uh, Friends, we should be friendly to non-Christians, 
with the aim to teach them the gospel and the aim to see them come to faith in Christ. That's commendable. That's why we should have non-Christian friends in our life, with the aim towards seeing them come to know Christ. But tying the knot, yoking our lives together in dating, marriage, friendship, and especially in the church, is forbidden in Scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. If you would hold your place in 2 Timothy 2, I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. I want to show you what this kind of looks like in the life of a church, and this idea of being holy and separate and distinct, being friendly to unbelievers, but also caring deeply about the holiness in the lives of its members. 1 Corinthians 5. For local churches to remain a bright, beautiful, and holy witness for Jesus, Scripture commands us to exercise loving church discipline. Church discipline is the righteous and loving concern and pursuit of professing believers among the members of a local church who are choosing to love their sin more than loving Jesus. The word for cleanse, back in 2 Timothy 2.21, therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, is used again only in one other place in the New Testament, and it's right here in 1 Corinthians 5. When Paul is having to admonish the Corinthians for not dealing with a church member who is living an unrepentant, outward, and serious sin. And friends, what you're going to read here is Paul's rebuke. Their inaction of doing nothing was them tolerating and approving of this person's sin. And so Paul's having to admonish them and reteach them about love and holiness in the church. 1 Corinthians 5, I want you to notice how he uses this. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That means the realm of the unbelieving world. No longer under the discipline of the church, but allow them to face the wiles of the devil and the sinful temptations of the world with no more love and care and teaching under that discipline. You are to deliver that man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, but with a purpose so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
The purpose is repentance. The purpose is restoration. The purpose is that it would come back to Christ and be restored in the church. Verse 6, though, the rebuke continues. Your boasting, your toleration, your really silent approval is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Verse 7, did you notice this? Cleanse out the old leaven. That's the same Greek word in 2 Timothy 2.21. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. They profess to be a Christian. They've been baptized. They come to the Lord's Supper. They are a covenant member of the church you are a member of. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, and the presumably idea here is unrepentant, or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So go back to 2 Timothy. Friends, biblical church discipline, when carried out carefully in love for the erring member, with the aim towards seeing them repent and restored, is deeply loving to that person. It is sanctifying the unity and godliness of the church, and it ultimately honors the Lord. It honors the master of the house. This church is not Blake Boylston's church. It's not the elders. It's not the deacons. It's ultimately not even the members. It's King Jesus' church. He's the master of the house. We are the privileged, forgiven servants who are called to keep the house clean. And friends, when churches don't take church discipline serious, it shows they don't take holiness before God serious either. John MacArthur once said, the church that takes a strong verbal stand against sin without practicing discipline cannot expect its members to conform to God's standard of holiness. Talk is cheap. Beloved, if you're a member here at CCBC and you know you're living a double life right now, I mean, it's just gnawing at your conscience. Don't run from God anymore. This is an act of love that you're here. Don't try to play church. Don't try to play with sin. It will catch up with us. Ask for help. Talk to one of your elders. Talk to the members of the church. We want to be a transparent, humble, helping one another get to heaven kind of church, which means before it gets beautiful, it gets messy. Because we're not playing church. It's not a stained glass masquerade hour. We want to help each other fight sin, flee from sin, run from sin, avoid it, and help each other make it to heaven. We love you. And that is the fruit of meaningful church membership. 
But in his pursuit of holiness, Timothy was not only to run from and avoid certain vices and certain people, he was also to pursue. Notice again, verse 22. So flee youthful passions. Okay, then what else am I supposed to do with my energy and time? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Friends, what does the pursuit of holiness in the life of a Christian look like? Well, it means there's no rooms in the house of our life that we're telling Jesus no and he can't enter. In other words, we have no area of our life, our thought life, our friends, what we do with our money, what we do in this church, who we are listening to on the internet, who we're getting counsel from. Every single square inch of our life, Jesus has the key to every door to our life. That's what holiness is. There's no hole in our holiness. God's word is speaking to every single area of our life, from marriage, parenting, sin, forgiveness, anger, all of it. That's what holiness is. God works in us by shining his light on us to free us from the bondage of our sin and the snare of the devil. As author Dustin Binge has said, a chief work of the Spirit is to bring beauty out of chaos. In sanctification, the Spirit brings beauty out of fallen flesh and wayward hearts. Thus, the church becomes an instrument of Christ's beaming radiance in the world through the individual expressions of the work of grace by the Spirit in the lives of believers. To my non-Christian friend, when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he gets all of us all the time. That's what it means to be a Christian. There are no Sunday-only Christians in the Bible. It's 24-7. No priesters either, Christmas and Easter only. It is 24-7, 365 days a week or year. The Lord is sovereign, he is good, he is our savior, and he gets all of us. We can run, but we cannot hide. He presses little bruises that we don't want anyone to touch, but he keeps doing it. He's saying, I want to heal you. I want to heal you. That thing you just keep running from in your life, I want to heal you. I want to set you free. I want to liberate you. I want to deliver you. Friends, that's why Jesus came, to rescue us. Jesus is the only one who ever lived a perfect life of holiness and dependent trust on his Father. He lived the perfectly beautiful life. The master of the house took on human flesh and became the suffering servant for sinners like us. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because God hates sin. He is holy, holy, holy. And the master of the house is keeping his house pure and holy in his sight. And friends, he's in the business of taking the most wretched sinners, including Blake Boylston, including everyone in this room, and cleansing us, not just our record, but our hearts. That's why he came, to die on the cross in our place. God raised him from the dead on the third day, proving he is our only Savior and our only the only Savior worth trusting. 
the only one our hope should be ultimately set upon. And if we turn from our sins and put our faith in him, he will rescue us and give us new hearts with new affections, new ambitions, and new pursuits, all because he loves us. Turn from your sins today. Be reconciled with God and begin to experience the abundant life with him. Amen? Friends, Christ gave up his life so that we might have life in his name. So what does life with God through Christ look like? What does a daily pursuit of that which is pleasing to God look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul answers it. He told Timothy, pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. What is righteousness? All right, here's just an easy definition. All that which is right and good according to God. There you go. All that which is right and good according to God. It means speaking, believing, defending, and obeying all that pleases God. If God's good with it, then we're good with it. If God's not good with it, we're not good with it. You see that? Godly behavior, Christ-like desires, kingdom of God priorities. These things please God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And friends, pursuing righteousness means putting Jesus first in everything. Your future, your families, everything. What did Jesus say? He said, don't worry about so many things, just worry about one thing. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to pursue righteousness? Pursue Christ's likeness and center your life around Christ's church. You do those two things well, Everything else seems to fall in place. Next, he says, pursue faith. Pursue faith. What is faith? Here's an easy definition, okay? Taking God at his word. Taking God at his word. Trusting his character when you cannot trace his hand. Waiting expectantly on his promises to come to pass. And it's relying not on our wisdom and strength, but on his in every circumstance. That's what faith is. Next, he says, pursue love. Love. What is love? Not, what is love, baby, don't hurt me. Not, not that. Sorry. <laughs> Flashback moments of really funny music. Maybe it's Travis being here. And we, jokes from the past. Anyway, I'm not sure we listened to that together. Moving on. <laughs> what is love? An enduring commitment. Listen, an enduring commitment to treat someone like Christ has treated you. All right, now watch this. I'm going to qualify it. An enduring commitment to treat someone like Christ has treated you, even if they don't deserve it. Dustin Binge, once again, says, this is not the butterflies in the stomach, first date kind of love, or the tear-swelling love at the reunion of friends. This is the sacrificial love that is conscious not of self-fulfillment, but of self-giving. This kind of love is absolute in its resolve, regardless of the response in return. 
Friends, we should be reading 1 Corinthians 13, not just at weddings and on Valentine's Day, but probably every week of our life. The live chapter is a lot more than just saying I do's at weddings. Wilson, Cassidy, if y'all want me to read that at your wedding, I can. It's a fine text. But the primary context is members of a congregation loving each other when there was lots of division in it. A divisive church is an unloving church. A gossiping church is an unloving church. And the same goes for marriage, friendships, etc. Friends, 1 Corinthians 13, could you put your name in the place of the word love? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at all wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You may say, why, why should we pursue love even when it's hard? Why should I treat someone with an enduring commitment as Christ has treated me even if they don't deserve it? 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. The proof in the pudding, if you're a Christian, is whether you have love for the brethren. Then he says, pursue peace. But then he qualifies it to kind of cap it all off. Pursue peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A pure heart just simply means those who are focused, committed, and faithful to God. So what does it mean to pursue peace with other believers in the body? Friends, it means to do everything in our ability to protect the unity we share in the gospel together. It means being antagonistic, protesting, and against Sinful, demonic, self-centered division. And instead, it means taking proactive, eager, and aggressive steps. Watch this. To overlook offenses that are pretty petty. Forgiving offenses when repentance and reconciliation have been attempted. Clearing the air and not making false assumptions. It's asking questions instead of making hasty or hurtful accusations. That's how we protect unity and being peacemakers. Isn't this what, exactly what Paul said in Romans 12, 17 to 18? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on who? You. Live peaceably with all. Being a biblical peacemaker is hard work. Being a biblical peacemaker is hard work because it involves handling conflict in constructive and biblical ways, not simply sweeping it under the rug or avoiding conflict at all costs. Friends, that's not being a peacemaker. That's being a coward. If we're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ, we should not be known as controversy creators. And at the same time, we cannot avoid all controversy at all cost. Friends, listen to this. Faithfulness to Jesus means following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus never went looking for trouble, but trouble often came looking for him. Sometimes people say if there's smoke, there's fire. So watch out for that person. Well, sometimes that fire was set by an instigator and a contentious person, not the person everyone's pointing to. 
Jesus had smoke all around him. Paul had smoke all around him. But it wasn't because they weren't men of peace. Someone else was setting fires around them to draw the controversy. Friends, if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, the more ferocious spiritual warfare will become. Friends, we should stay focused on our own personal pursuit of holiness. Instead of looking at all the sins and errors and mistakes of others, we first have to look in the mirror of God's word and ask, am I pursuing these things in my life? Am I too worried about other people's sanctification and walks with Jesus and not worried enough about my own? Friends, in every family, in every church, we are all unfinished portraits that God is still painting. We are all unfinished jars and pottery that the potter is still forming in his hands. And the more Christ-like we become, the more useful to the Lord we become in ministering to others. So Paul concludes this chapter by giving Timothy a clear personal charge directly to Timothy, loud and clear, about his responsibility as a servant of the Lord, a servant leader, namely a pastor, teacher, and spiritual example of the flock. Look with me starting in verses 24 and following. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Brothers and sisters, two questions we can raise from our sermon text today that were applicable to Timothy as well as to us. And I think these last texts will tie the bow on these questions. Question number one, how can you and I be used by the Lord for kingdom good? How can you and I be used by the Lord for kingdom good? All right, you've heard this many times already. Pursue holiness. Pursue Christ-likeness. It begins with our inner life before our outward works. Our affections, our desires, our thoughts, they are going to overflow into our relationships, into our goals, into our ministry, into our finances. Friends, before we can be concerned about other people's spiritual life, we first must take an inspection and an inquiry of our own walks with Christ. Second, we must cultivate humility before the Lord. Humility before the Lord. Friends, do you notice what Paul told Timothy he is? The Lord's servant. The Greek word is doulos, one who is owned by a master. Friends, at very best, we are unworthy servants of a worthy master. That goes for everybody. We are unworthy servants simply trying to do what the master has told us to do. The more prideful we are, the less God will use us for kingdom good. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But the more humble we are, the more dependent we are, the more broken over our own sin we are, the more Jesus will become precious to us and he will be our only boast. Friends, thirdly, I want you to notice 
If we want to be used by the Lord for kingdom good, it does require courage and boldness. Courage and boldness. Everybody wants to be a hero, but nobody wants to suffer like a hero has to. Friends, Paul told Timothy early in this letter, do you remember 2 Timothy 1, 6-7? For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Friends, that means that Timothy was tempted, just like we all are, to go right up to the edge of the diving board to be used by the Lord to avoid and pursue. And when things get really, really hard, we've got a choice. Am I going to step up, stand firm, and look to my amazing and sovereign master, our mighty fortress? Or am I going to bolt, run, and quit when the going gets tough? You see, Timothy was not a pastor in a green room. He was not a pastor in an ivory tower, spouting off eloquent quotes, living distant from the lies of his church. No, he was in the muck and mire with them. Paul says, Timothy, you have opponents and you will have opponents until Jesus comes back. And he's reminding Timothy This is a spiritual war before any other kind of war you're ever going to face. Friends, what's going on in Israel right now? I don't really have any fight in this about how you perceive the causes and the remedy other than this one thing. At the root of it, it's a religious war. It is a false understanding of who God is. Allah is a demon. He is not a God. The prophet Muhammad is not a prophet. It's false, dead religion. That's why people do hateful, evil things, because they're possessed by the lowercase g God of this world. But friends, we don't have to go over to Israel or turn on the news channels to think about war on the ground and war in the air. There's war going on right now in our land and in our lives. Do not ever think when there are opponents and opposition arising in your family, arising in your church and outside the church, that you think that's accident, coincidence, just a bad day. Friends, we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present evil day. Friends, Paul knew that Timothy would be tempted to Act like a young man and fight when he shouldn't, or act like a coward and run when he shouldn't. Friends, I don't know about you, but I'm sure all of us have a list from the time we were kids to even to adults of people we wish would change. Who's the list of people in your life that you find yourself asking, I wish this person would change? Get their act together. Stop making your life so complicated and messy, causing you to lose your temper. They frustrate you. They are a thorn in your side. They annoy you. Their words are like a weekly water torture on your mind. 
and you're wondering to yourself, why won't God change them? Why won't he take them out of my life? Well, friends, it might be twofold. It might be God using that person, God using those people to make you and I more like Jesus. You don't have patience? He's going to put very impatient people in your life. If your idol is comfort and self-preservation, those thorns are going to come and they're going to stay. Anger, gossip, pride. God's not going to remove those people, at least not instantly, because he's also changing us in the process. See, Paul didn't say, hey, Timothy, I'm going to give you an easier church, easier city. Hey, come hang out with me in our winter home. Me and Titus are just cranking up the music, bro. No, he says, stay put, young man. Stay put. You're the Lord's servant. And what does he tell him to do? He says he must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Which leads to that second part then. Why won't God change them? (laughs) He may. He's changing you and I in the process, and he may grant them repentance in the process too. That's why how we respond to opposition is more important than we realize. Joel Beakey once said, Remember, you are known more for your reactions than your actions. For Timothy, he was to live out before difficult sheep and fierce opponents, a spirit-filled life, not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Friends, which leads to our last and final question, how do people change? If we all change, and change happens from a result of a lot of stuff, how do people change from opposing God's will to doing it? How do people go from being opponents to the gospel to friends to Jesus? How do those people go from opposing us, maybe even us opposing them, and change those hearts from bitterness and hatred to love and peace? Oh, friends, it always begins with a rock-solid conviction. You want someone to change? God wants them to change more than you do, and I do. Look what he says. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. You know what repentance means? The Greek word is metanoia, to change the mind, which leads to a change in behavior. We cannot change the human heart, but God can, and he does. He uses means to the word. He uses loving and wise Christians. He uses suffering and trials. Friends, think about the prodigal son. Father, give me my part of the inheritance. And you know what the father did? Take it. Go. He let his son live out his carnality, live out his lustful desires. And while he was eating the slop that the pigs ate from, he came to his senses. Some of the most loving things some adult parents can do in here is let your adult children go. Do not 
helicopter their life. If they're not listening, they're not responding to correction, and it seems to be getting worse in your family, let God be God. And the same can go for any of our situations, friends. Friends, we can't change hearts because spiritual power is stronger than human intellect. Look at verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Friends, false religion is demonic. Living in sin and seeing nothing wrong with it is demonic. Doing harm to people when you think it's okay with God is demonic. Demonic, demonic, demonic. We cannot fight that in our own strength. But he can. If you're here today and you're wondering, Blake, I... Loud and clear, brother. I want to be more useful to the Lord. And I also want to see lives changed for Jesus Christ. What should I hang my hat on? And what should I encourage others who might be despairing today to hang their hat on? I close with a quote from David Pallison. He says this, Suffering, struggle, and troubles change you. Although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. God works on us in the midst of trouble because trouble catches our attention. Difficulties make us need him. Faith has to sink roots as profession deepens into reality. Martin Luther called affliction, trial, difficulty, and struggle the touchstone of a Christian experience. He said that hardships were his greatest teacher because they made scripture and prayer come alive. The difficulties that we experience necessitate grace by awakening a true sense of weakness and need. This is where the spirit is working. People change because something is hard, not because everything goes well. Something, including myself, is off. Ministry traffics in trouble. Because Christ enters trouble, lives through trouble, is unafraid of trouble, speaks and acts into trouble, struggles force us to need God. And we learn to love the way Christ loves only by experiencing the hard things that he experienced in loving us. We enter into other people's troubles with patience, gentleness, courage, and truth because Christ has entered into our troubles and loved us in the same way. The more Christ-like we become, the more useful to the Lord we become in ministering to others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you that you teach us in your word what to avoid and what to pursue. Or we thank you that you actually give us the ability and desire to do such a thing. Lord, we pray even now that you would cause us to reflect and inquire our own walks with Christ. Lord, we want to be useful to you. And so we pray you would purge and cleanse from our own hearts a sin that has entangled us. And Father, we pray you give us 
patience and forbearance and endurance to bear up evil, to correct others with gentleness, knowing that you can grant repentance to any sinner at any time, including ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.